Let's look to the Lord in prayer. And our fathers, we're coming into your presence. We're coming into the presence of the Holy One. You're the sovereign God. And you're set apart. The triune God, the three in one. And though we're sinful by nature, you, the sinless one, broke in, stepped forward. Jesus dies on the cross for our sins, the sinless for the sinful. And as a result, Father, salvation is secured, not on the basis of our works, not on the basis of us claiming goodness by nature, but exclusively on the basis of Christ's work, which was secured because of his true nature. So, Father, we thank you so much for what you've done. Words cannot begin to offer the extent and the depth of praise and thanksgiving to you. But, Father, nonetheless, we attempt to offer you words of praise by not only our lips, but our lives in the moments, days, weeks, and years to come. So, Father, with that in mind, what we're praying again as we are pondering these verses of today, that you would warm these hearts, engage these minds, shape these wills. As again, Father, we've come here this morning to see Jesus and him only. Praying these things again now in Jesus' name. Amen. False claims are not only found here in these verses, but you find them in everyday scenarios. Listen to some of these insurance claims that are now out there on the internet, such as the one who is trying to rationalize his accident this way. Going to work at 7 a.m. this morning, I drove out of my driveway straight into a bus. The problem was the bus was five minutes early. Then there's this one. I started to slow down, but the traffic was more stationary than I thought. I know, I'm struggling with that one too. And then for that person out in the rural section, the claimant had collided with a cow. And the questions and answers on the claim form were as follows. Question, what warning was given by you? Answer, horn. Question, what warning was given by the other party? Answer, moo. Another claimant said, I didn't think the speed limit applied after midnight. I collided with a stationary truck coming the other way. Coming home, I drove into the wrong house and collided with a tree I don't have. And this one's a beaut too. My car was legally parked as it backed into another vehicle. Well, you begin to ponder these, and you realize that if there is something that they all share in common, is that there is either a form of rationalization, or there is some underlying desire to excuse oneself of responsibility, which is exactly what is happening here, you see, in these verses. 
And so now we pick it up where we left off last week. And what we want to do here in verse 8 and in verse 10 is, first of all, analyze, evaluate the false claims that some people make. And they start with that phrase, if we say. And then we'll end by, in verse 9, looking at the true cleansing that all people need in that incredibly profound verse that John penned. But first of all, the false claims that some people make, let's examine verse 8 and the false claim that's here. And the false claim is simply, we have no sin. In other words, this is the sin, this in reality is simply the claim of humanism, that you and I entered into this world basically good. If we say we have no sin is how this begins. Now what's interesting is that when you and I begin to look very carefully at the word here for sin, it comes from the Greek word hamatias, used over 60 times in the, in the Newer Testament. And it means literally to miss the mark. To miss the mark. Hamatia. And I thought about that when I read of Dale Galloway's description of this. A salesman was far away from home, driving down an unfamiliar country highway, when all of a sudden he came upon a barn which had a huge bullseye painted in the middle of it. He could hardly believe his eyes. There in the middle of the bullseye were hundreds of arrows. Every arrow was inside the bullseye. And as he drove on down the highway, his curiosity got the best of him. He turned his car around and drove back to where the barn was to take another look. He spotted a farmhouse nearby, so he drove to where it was and met the farmer. And after they got acquainted, he said, Could you tell me who the excellent marksman is who shot all these arrows inside the bullseye? The farmer laughed and said, it was my son. He had shot all those arrows at the side of the barn. Then he climbed up there and painted a bullseye around all the arrows to create the false impression that he was a great marksman. And when I read that phrase, I connected it then to hamatia, the Greek word which was used to describe an archer in that time period one who misses the mark. And then connected to 2017 living because we could somehow, some way connected to this idea that the culture of today is that which people shoot the arrow and then make the mark. While the biblical approach is that God makes the mark And then we are to shoot the arrow. And the question is, which comes first? Who has the right to create the mock? And does God create the mock? Or do you and I create the mock? And when is that mock created? Now, in this era of rationalization, The natural tendency is to excuse oneself. We shoot the arrow and then create the mock. 
But this is not what the Bible is teaching here. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. So we look very carefully at this word hamartia, and we're struck with the fact that John loves that word. He uses that word. He uses it in 1 John chapter 3, verse 4. And he uses it again in 1 John chapter 5, verse 17. One to describe lawlessness, the other to describe injustice. But if you and I were to explore how Jesus Christ addresses missing the mark, how Jesus Christ addresses the whole area, you see, of sin. We're told in Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, that Jesus saves us from hamartia. In Acts chapter 3, verse 19, our sins are wiped out. Hamartia, you see, is wiped out. But you see, ancient ink had no acid in it be sponged off the surface. Because of the work of Jesus Christ, the record of our sin is obliterated, sponged away. These are various descriptives of how God goes about addressing this matter, you see. Missing the mark. So does God create the mark and then we aim, or do we aim and then we create the mark? So with this in mind then, when we are told in the scriptures all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, it's as if what he is saying in the imagery of archery is that the archer took aim, fell short, could not hit the target. And then goes on to say, this is, in essence, what we are all about as well. So now, if we are going to deal with real reality, we've got to address this statement of humanism. The statement, we have no sin. And he pokes holes into that argument and says, if we say we have no sin, notice what comes next. What he tells us here is that we deceive ourselves. Now, Jeremiah tells us that the heart is deceitful above all things, desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. So now when you and I see this and know we're dealing with hamartia, how do people then cope in a world such as ours of hamartia, falling short of the mark and prone, in other words, to shoot first and then create the target? When you begin to track the word deceive throughout the scriptures, it's used in at least five different contexts, one of which we just see here. The second in James chapter 1, verse 22, we're hearing God's word, but not doing what God's word says is a form of deception. Galatians 6, 3 informs us that when you're thinking you are something, you're really not. You're in the realm of deception. 
1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 18 and 19 teach us that when you're thinking you are wise in this worldly age, you deceive yourself. And in James chapter 1, verse 26, when you think you can be truly religious but not bridle your tongue, you deceive yourself. But what all these share in common is this. It says we deceive ourselves. It does not say we deceive others. Do you see that there? If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. Now, if you're a parent, if you're somebody who is out in the workplace and you're day in, day out working with people who are trying to cope with reality, one of the primary coping mechanisms in this day and age is the realm of deception. How do people deceive? Well, as Neil Anderson might put it, there is the denial of reality. For others, fantasy, escaping reality. Third, emotional insulation, where we withdraw from people, withdraw from the fellowship of faith. Fourth, regression, where we revert back to less threatening times. Displaced anger. Where all of a sudden, out of the blue, somebody explodes and vents frustration on innocent people. Projection. Blaming others for our problems. Rationalization. Making excuses for the decisions we've made. All of these, then, are secular society's versions of coping mechanisms, alternatives to God's word and God's prescription for dealing what's within us. And John brings us to real reality, not our own self-created realities, where we redefine hamartia and where we call deception authenticity But instead, he says, if we have no sin, it does not read we deceive others. We deceive. We deceive ourselves. And then notice what comes next. And it says, and the truth is not in us. Does not read, and the truth is not around us. And here's the challenge. You can have truth all around you, but not have truth within you. You can deceive yourself internally while still being religious externally, rather than finding that consistency where the inward and the outward are one and the same where we allow for Scripture to speak truth into our our souls, the truth. It's to be within us. David wrote, Behold, your delight, you delight in 
truth in the inward being. And you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. It was winter time. There was an ice storm. And the newspapers captured this quote from a police officer. There was a small tree near the fallen power line, he said, the kind with a short trunk and lots of long, thin branches. And while that fallen power line was crackling and popping with electricity, it was throwing out sparks through the branches of that small tree. The sparks would reflect off the ice-covered branches, sending out a rainbow of glimmering colors. And I stood there and watched and wondered how anything so beautiful could be so deadly. The tension between in the appearance matters of reality versus counterfeit reality. An actor dies because of cocaine overdose. He had once said with regard to cocaine, it can do you no harm and it can drive you insane. It can give you status in society and can wreck your career. It can make you the life of the party and it can turn you into a loner. It can be an elixir for high living and a potion for death. He was able to make these statements, but still had to succumb to the reality of the addiction. Now, what John is doing at this point is that he is confronting counterfeit realities, isn't he? People who are with the realm of truth around them still allowing for deception to be found within them. And so he states, if we say, that's humanism, we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, we pause then and look at all the various coping mechanisms that people utilize to make it seem as though deception is truth. Rather than to understand what God's truth has to say about deception. We deceive ourselves, and here's the crux here, and the truth is not in us. And then the echo of David's words reach into the mindset, into the heart of our our own psyche. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. And now you've addressed The false claim of verse 8, the claim of humanism. But there is another claim, it's the claim of verse 10, it's the claim of perfectionism. If we say, there's that phrase again, we have not sinned. What's the difference between 8 and 10? Verse 8 is denying the idea of inherited sin. We come to this world sinful by nature. Verse 10 is saying that I have overcome sin, and therefore I have not sinned. What then is he going to say to that kind of thing? What he is doing at this point is pointing us in the direction of God. 
and telling us we have made him a liar. Now, what interests me at this point is that in our Bibles, in Isaiah chapter 65, verse 16, not once but twice, you will find God described as the God of truth. Listen. So that he who blesses himself in the land shall bless himself by whom? The God of truth. And he who takes an oath in the land shall swear by the God of truth. What fascinates me is that in the original language in the Hebrew, the word truth is pronounced amen. In other words, he is the amen of your life. Now, truth was very important to John. You see it a lot in 1 John, but it really would have seized his attention. You see, back in that time in which he was in that upper room and Jesus was teaching, Jesus, making a claim, said, I am the way and the truth and the life. And no one comes to the Father but through me. And then speaking of the Holy Spirit in John chapter 16, verse 13, When the spirit of truth comes, he'll guide you into all the truth. And then again in chapter 17, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. So it's not enough for you and for me to be able to say there is truth all around me. The question is, have I personalized it? and reached a point when I am truly willing and able to say the truth is within me. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar. But 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 2 tells us that God is truth. Steve McQueen, before he died, was put off by religious pretense, but he was an addict. And he was struggling with the realities of life and the outcome of how he lived his life and asked for Billy Graham to come to visit him. And Billy Graham turned in his scriptures to Titus chapter 1 verse 2 and challenged Steve McQueen with the whole idea that God is truth and that he truly sent Jesus Christ, I am the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to the Father but through me to die in your place for your sins. By God's grace, Billy Graham led Steve McQueen to Jesus before McQueen passed away. But what you find here now is a tension. The tension in verse 8, we have no sin. The tension in verse 10, we have not sinned. Verse 8, humanism. Verse 10, perfectionism. And notice there is something in common when you look very carefully at 8 and 10. In verse 8, the truth is not in us. In verse 10, his word is not in us. Now you're picking up on a pattern that he wants to address in your life and mine, that we've got to be able to drink deeply from this well of God's word and internalize it, allowing it to make its way within Ken Hughes tells the story that during the French Revolution, prisoners, political prisoners, were herded into dungeons. 
And in one place, a prisoner possessed a Bible, and his cell was crammed with men who wanted to hear the word of God. And once each day, for only a few moments, a shaft of light would come through a tiny window near the ceiling. The prisoners devised a plan whereby they would lift the owner of the Bible onto their shoulders and into the sunlight. And there in that position, he would study the scriptures. And then they would bring him down and say, Tell us now, what did you read while you were in the light? Now we explored last week, didn't we, that in 1 John 1, 5, this is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light. And in him there is no darkness at all. And the former president of Wheaton College, V. Raymond Edmund, put it this way. Never doubt in the dark what you learned in the light. When dark times come, externally, Does God's light shine internally? There, then, is the collision course that he is drawing out for you and drawing out for me. So we take the two in us statements at the end of verse 8, again at the end of verse 10. We tie it all together to address these two false claims in verse 8 and verse 10, the claim of humanism in verse 8, the claim of perfectionism in verse 10. And we say, now, in light of all this, where do I turn? What do I need to experience? Well, verses 8 and 10 deal with the false claims some people make. We turn our attention now to verse 9 and the true cleansing that all people need. And we begin to break down this verse. And we understand the significance of what it says to you, what it says to me, and how it relates to all. It begins with this phrase, if we confess our sins. The word confess here carries with the idea to say the same thing. And you say, but Gary, what does that have to do with what we're addressing? To say the same thing in the same way that God would say it, define it to view the same thing the same way that God views it and defines it. And furthermore, if we were to translate this verb, we could also say if we are confessing our sins, which means then that there is this ongoing, unending sense that every time I spot an inclination, I'm moving towards a particular sin, I position myself to be confessing that sin bringing it before God and allowing myself to deal with real reality and watch how God works in my life. Peter's on that boat. John's got to be there. And in Luke chapter 5, beginning in verse 1 onwards, we find that they're out in the boat and Jesus is teaching the people. And finally, when he finishes speaking, he tells Simon, put out into the deep, let down your nets for catch. 
And Simon has got to be exhausted, says, Master, we toiled all night, took nothing but at your word, I'll let down the nets. You know the story. And the nets were overflowing with fish. What fascinates me, and it probably fascinates you as well, there is no record here of Jesus even teaching at that moment about sin. But what is the reaction to this abundance of fish in the netting? When Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. And with that, he is confronting humanism and perfectionism simultaneously. Now, here's the tension point in Peter's life. In the earlier days of his experience with Jesus, the cry was, depart from me. He is so conscious of his sin. But after the sin matter has been addressed, we find Jesus walking on water, and what does Peter do? Row away? He gets out of the boat and begins moving toward Jesus. And now the one who had previously said, depart from me, he wanted distance from God, now describes, offers us, illustrates for us a sense of movement towards God. And do you feel the tension in his life, in this continuum? What has happened? The sin issue has been addressed between he and Jesus. And in a prior time where he wanted distance, now he wants proximity. Now, do you find yourself wanting distance? Or do you find yourself wanting proximity? People use coping mechanisms, you see. Other means of addressing sin than the manner that John is offering us here. Here, then, is real reality, true truth, as Francis Schaeffer would put it. If we confess our sins, notice now the twofold descriptive here of your God. He is faithful, number one. He is just, number two. Look upon your own, Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 9, it's rich. And what you will find is that God is faithful to his promise, which means then that when you and I have confessed our sins before God, he is the keeper of the promise. You and I live among people that continuously break promises. But in the matter of the issue of eternal life and how sin is to be addressed, here is the keeper of the promise. If we confess our sins, he is, number one, faithful. And number two, as you go to the cross of Jesus Christ, just. 
Now, the humanist view of sin looks at the cross of Jesus Christ and says what Jesus Christ did on the cross was unnecessary. False claim out of verse 8. I am basically good. The religionist looks at verse 10 and his false claim is what Christ did on the cross was insufficient. You need to add my works to Christ's work in order for me to be acceptable to God. But we can neither do addition nor deletion. We allow the cross to speak as is, sola, singular, solitude, alone. If we confess our sins, he's number one, faithful, and number two, just. What I want you to see that's on the screen are the two twos that come next. Can you spot them? He is faithful and just to number one, to forgive us our sins. Stop right there. When you're walking down the streets someday in London, Lord willing, you're going to want to stop at Abbey Church. One of the great, great scenes from Pilgrim's Progress is there at the church, stained glass window. Christian, you see, is kneeling at the foot of the cross. And there's this dark and heavy burden that's rolling off his shoulders. In Bunyan's immortal picture, an answer is being given to the question, what is the result of forgiveness? And Christian, in Pilgrim's Progress, responses, he saw it no more. The burden was gone. Some of us are incredibly burdened by decisions from our past that led us down paths we wish we had never gone. Some of us are burdened right now about decisions we're making that will take us down paths we should never go. Now, what God is saying through John is that there is to be this ongoing, unending, proactive, reactive sense of confession before God, addressing issues one by one, as they come our way. And as we do so, we are confessing them directly to God through Jesus Christ. If we confess our sins, he is number one faithful, he is number two just to forgive us our sins. And like Bunyan's picture of Christian at this point, the burden is lifted. And my gut feel this morning is that in all three services, I've been talking to burden bearers who are so wearied by decisions of the past that weigh them down, by issues of the present where they're looking for an alternative to God's way, moving into the realm of deception rather than authentic reality. And the result is, is that they're exhausted by life because, very frankly, God's holiness is exhausting them. And they need to come to true grips with who God truly is and embrace his grace. People long for forgiveness 
and they may not even realize it. To number one, forgive us our sins. And your second two, and to cleanse us from all, not some, all unrighteousness. In one word, forgiveness deals with the legal realm. The other word, cleansing, deals with the medical realm. And he says, legally and medically, I'm illustrating for you what needs to be done spiritually and eternally. As he brings you face to face with the sinless one who died for the sinful ones, you see. Francis Havergal understood that. A gifted Christian writer. She was weighed down by decisions she had made in her past and still felt chained to them. In her latter years, she was reading her, interestingly enough, Greek New Testament, and she came to 1 John 1.7. And in that incredible statement, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his Son, cleanses us from all sin. Now take that statement in verse 7, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin, and draw a line now to verse 9, where it reads, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. When she discovered that the word cleanse here carried with it the idea of a continuous, never-ending action, it gave her such peace and assurance within her own soul. Her biographer tells us that the joy became unspeakable so that at her funeral, her Bible lay open to the casket of 1 John 1.7. And you know what? A line was drawn from 1.7 to 1.9. You tie it all together. And you see the patterns of two claims. You see the patterns of the not in us. You see the patterns of cleansing. There are groupings of twos here that come together. But when you come to grips with the fact that the ultimate claim is not the false claims that will get us through life, but the real claim that God has upon your life, that Jesus Christ died for your sins, and if you place faith exclusively in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you are secure. And by God's grace, you are assured you are at one and at peace with God. Let's stand together. Father, there is so much here in these few verses. We know that from your eternal vantage point, we're merely scratching the surface. We're trying to go as deep as possible in the time you give us. What we want, Father, week by week, is to leave with nourished souls, not starved, longing for more but with nourished souls, feeling feeling as though you have filled us with truth. We don't want to settle for truth around us. 
We want truth within us. So keep us from counterfeit realities. Keep us from creating our own bullseyes. But rather, we're asking now that you equip us to embrace what's here, apply it to our lives, and bring honor to your name. And for this, we'll give you all the praise. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.